Welcome to Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybal Inc. I'm Pete Wright, and I am here, as ever, with Howard Tybal. Howard. Good morning, Pete. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Feeling very good. Yeah, it's, it's nice to it's nice to not be traveling. It's uh, it's sort of a new. I, I'm waking up in my own bed, going, "Oh, I know where I am." It's a weird <laughs> feeling, isn't it? It is a, a weird very feeling. Weird feeling. Listen to that. That is the voice of our very special guest chiming in from the future. We have <laughs> uh, we have writer, speaker, teacher, futurist Brian Alexander. Brian. Uh, welcome to Navigating Change, sir. Greetings. I'm glad to be aboard. What's hysterical, Brian, is that for me is that you know I'm I'm often scouring the web for interesting podcasts as I'm doing my exercise, the elliptical machine, to keep my mind occupied. And I came across an Inside Higher Ed podcast, and I listened to this guy. I'm like, oh my god, this guy is saying such great stuff. Because it started off, it was about technology, but it evolved into a much bigger conversation. And then I find out, a couple weeks later, I'm going to meet Brian at an economics models project um, meeting of a group who's looking within Nakubo about where where Nakubo can, can help with uh, institutions telling the story about looking forward. And Brian came and told, uh, well, not only did he participate in the day that was so helpful thinking of helping us think outside the box, but he also told some futuristic views, not just, you know, 20 years from now, but like 10 years from now, uh, the story of where higher ed could go and getting our reactions. And Brian, I got to tell you, it was eye-opening for everybody there, and it elevated the conversation in a way. So I'm just thrilled that uh, you're with us today having this conversation. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, It was a delight uh, to be working with Nakubo, and it was great to meet you at last after listening to your podcasts and uh, following your work. Um, I think uh, I think we have a lot in common and a lot of good overlap. Um, I'm looking forward to the next fifty-seven point five minutes or so. Hey, Brian, <laughs> tell me tell me something. And you know, I I wasn't planning on asking this question because I don't want to put anyone in particular on the spot. But I my hunch is that business officers their horizon of focus is uh, fairly close to uh, where they are sitting right now. How do you think they handled your presentation coming from this perspective as a, as a futurist in, in education? Well, I think, first of all, I'm always happy to be on the spot. I think I sometimes live on the spot. Oh, and, and let me let me correct you. I'm not talking about putting you on the spot. I'm talking about putting them, most of our <laughs> audience, on the spot. You're just fine. Well, I'm, I'm even, as, a, as a recovering English professor, I'm always happy to put other people on the spot. <laughs> uh, I think... Um, I, I think in general, like most people in higher education, um, CFOs, CBOs have a relatively short time horizon of the academic year, perhaps shorter than that. Um, they do have the framework if they have a master plan or a strategic plan for thinking five or ten years out. But in daily practice, they're really down in the trenches. They have a very narrow horizon. And uh, the same goes for just about everybody on campus. So the same goes for most academic deans, definitely for faculty, for support staff, for students. And I think it's uh, it's difficult to get out of that, especially – 95% of schools, which have been going through austerity in some form or other in the past eight years, have even less time uh, and less professional development uh, ability in order to be able to get out of the day-to-day -day grind and get into the strategic realm. Uh, but the difference here, I think, was that Nakubo superbly framed this and organized it so that it would be futures-oriented. It, it took people out of their uh, trenches, as it were, and put them in a different spot. 
And then they picked me to kickstart it by, um, well, you know, it may be to scare the bejesus out of them, but really just to give them a sense of different stories about different possibilities. And I think that's that's something that futures work can really do. Uh, it can shock you out of where you are. Uh, and it could be a good shock. I mean, thinking about wonderful possibilities. Um, it can be terrifying. It can be somewhere in between. So Brian gives uh, a series of scenarios to get a reaction. And, you know, our jaws are dropped listening to this just because most of us, including myself, since I'm in the trenches very often with senior teams, I know how they're listening to this. And and then he reflects on, you know, I've got 12 other scenarios, by the way, that are much worse than these. <laughs> I'm like, are you serious? But, but it paints, it really shows the importance of bringing people in who are not uh, encumbered by the stories that we tell internally and why we can and cannot do things, what what effectively the way you framed the future forced all of us to say, if, if any of those things come true, uh, how would we deal with those? And I think it's easy to fall into complacency. And I don't think of myself as complacent in any way, but I got to tell you, I got to watch myself, even in my own work, buying into an institution telling me why we can't do things. And that, you know, in the world of consulting of 28 years doing this kind of work, finding the balance of making sure you're, you're meeting somebody's needs at the same time, not just uh, doing what they're asking you to do, but telling the truth, that can sometimes be tricky. Uh, you do that very effectively, at least in what I've seen so far. Well, thank you. Um, I think in, I think that's very nice of you to say. I think in part it's a privilege of being the outsider, of being um, a consultant, is that we we have, uh, you know, that gives us the stance where we can say these things. Now, people can tell us to go away, or they can ignore us. That's also the privilege of the of the outsider. But I think that's I, I think that's a really useful stance. And in, in right now in higher education, I. We seem to be in a mood of crisis that goes back almost a decade now. Uh, I think people are more receptive in some ways to hearing uh, such voices than they used to be. This gets us into a recent post you shared on your blog on the New Media Consortium's Horizons Report 2016 Higher Education Edition that is currently in development. In your post, you outline bullets that discuss the most impactful trends in higher ed over coming time horizons, three years, five years. Can you share a little bit of background on this report for those who haven't heard of it, first of all, and, and then tell us what these bullets represent for our purposes today? Sure. Let me take a step back then. Uh, the Horizon Project is a series of reports produced by the New Media Consortium. Uh, in full disclosure, I'm a researcher with the NMC. The uh, NMC has been doing this for quite some time, and the way these reports work is they are documents giving us the best intelligence we've got about the future of certain sectors of education as they intersect with technology. So for a while, the most famous report was the Higher Education Report. Now, within each report, the structure is interesting. They look at the next five years, and that's where the horizons come from. It looks at technologies and other forces that will impact education in the one-year, two-year, three-year, four-year, five-year timeframes. Now, the Horizon Report come, for Higher Education comes out in February. Uh, it's been coming out in February for quite some time. And you can go back to, you know, through the Horizon Report website and see the previous reports. They're all free. Uh, they're very short, very condensed full of examples and good definitions. 
they're not written for technical audiences. They're written for anybody in a campus, so you can hand them to a trustee or a president without fear. And they do a really good job of collating expert knowledge at this point. The bullets are fascinating because when you look at what is what what is outlined here on the the short term, right? We have these issues around technology and around issues that Howard and I have have talked about on this show for many years on on uh, this focus on measuring learning and and dealing with new blended learning design and how do we you know how do we as educators figure out uh, you know how to better engage students in the classroom by way of technology. And there is a lot uh, in here that strikes me uh, uh, that we're we're focusing on how we as human creatures adapt to the promise of technology, mm. uh, but also leads us to this five-year horizon, which is right where, you know, Howard sits in his teaching around changing, ad- advancing cultures of change and innovation and rethinking how institutions work. The connection between the two is what I would very much like to hear you you both uh, talk about today. How do we get from this discussion of the promise of technology, the allure of technology uh, in the classroom, and how it can help transform our institutions and move into a, 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 a more of a broader discussion about this is a human issue, this is a cultural issue, and if we're going to to be better with technology, we have to learn more sufficiently how to adapt to it. As long as I, you know, I, I think back to the late '80s when uh, I started getting involved. Actually, in the early early '90s, the introduction of enterprise resource planning systems like Oracle, PeopleSoft, now become Banner, then Kuali, and all of these systems intending to create a greater degree of efficiency and effectiveness. And there were an overwhelming amount of promises about what that would do for an institution. And and senior leaderships and boards all bought into it, and they invested millions and millions of dollars across our institutions. And in the end, uh, there was a high degree of dissatisfaction. What we ended up doing was we replaced one system for another and didn't recognize that this these are not technology projects, they're people projects. So that was the first foray into recognizing the gap. So now it's 20 years later, and I think what we're discovering is this idea that the problem is not that we don't have good systems. The problem is the underlying implicit cultures that we don't know how to talk about. We don't know how to, we don't know how to engage each other in how we deal with change. And fundamentally, these tools are supposed to enable us to do what we do well. And Brian, my experience is, is that the, the problem is more that when we find something that seems like a, an easy fix or an easier fix, it lets us avoid doing the more difficult things, which is in some cases just sitting down and saying, what are some of the challenge or even brutal facts or things that we don't want to talk about that have to do with our culture that's really inhibiting where we're going? And to me, it keeps slapping us in the face when we keep with especially accelerating technology, that we keep avoiding the critical conversations. Well, what are some of those uh, critical conversations that you think we should be having? You know, it's funny. I was in this uh, group conversation about elephants in the room. So it was in the Kubo-sponsored thing at their last annual meeting, and, and they they brought together 
a whole series of leaders to talk about what is an elephant in the room. And we created a list probably of 25 things, depending on where you sit, that are things to talk about, whether it is, what does it mean to have the right kinds of programs for institutions? What does it mean to set, sunset certain programs? What, what do we, right. How do we think about tenure? How do we think about uh, shared governance? And we live in these siloed environments. So, so my focus these last couple of years, and as I think forward, I think this is where, where we all have to go, is if, if higher ed is going to continue with a model of shared governance, and it is going to, it has to. It's the, the fundamental conversation is how do we get the different leaders and our community engaged in how do we want to change and evolve? And what we do for the most part is we shy away from that and we live in our individual silos. And if we've got the authority, we make decisions. And in some cases, we do our best to engage our community. But I think we're just at the beginning stages of learning how to affect change by having conversations across the aisle. I think one of the interesting interesting questions that this sort of presupposes is that we that we have given ourselves the the time and wherewithal to really attempt to envision what we want this thing to look like uh, education, right? If we're going to attempt to to take on issues like financing education and and access to education and um, envisioning what uh, new models of education and service delivery look like, at some point we have to be able to step back and actually actually kind of envision a new model for our institution. And I wonder, you know, Brian, is there what do you see as as getting in the way or, or these roadblocks? or speed bumps to allowing us to be able to have conversations like that and really have transformative conversations about our facilities? I think there's all kinds of obstacles. Uh, One is that we are used to our silos. And in fact, we love our our silos. We celebrate them. We professionalize. And you think back to the past century, we've always had disciplines that were walled off from each other to a degree. But with the rise of the research university, especially in the Cold War, you had professions becoming even more professionalized. I mean, you subdivided and subdivided further so that in literature, a medievalist and a 20th century person would have little to say to each other, for example. But then the support staff as well became more and more professionalized from fundraising to IT to libraries to student life. So they've become stovepiped off from each other. On top of that, We grew higher education roughly from 1980 to 2012. We expanded the uh, enrollment just hugely. I mean, equally as important the growth as happened after World War II with the GI Bill. And one part of that was increased competition, especially as public universities and colleges started receiving less money and had to rely more on tuition. So our competitive streaks have just been raised. Plus, we have the crazy, you know, irrational competition based on uh, athletics um, that really, you know, I'm a University of Michigan grad. And apparently when I drove across Ohio last week, I should have been roundly mocked or something. But these but these these competitions are ferocious. Uh, I had a friend of mine who was a, a college prof and I said, why don't you I mean, a college president? And I asked him, why don't you collaborate more? And he said, because, Brian, when I meet our trustees, they never ask me. How are we doing in collaboration? They always ask me, 
How are we doing in crushing the competition? So I think that combination of, of silos and then uh, increased competition— Sort of boosterism, uh, in fact, internally. Yeah, yeah. It, it can be a real crazed boosterism. I, one of the colleges I work with spent a lot of money, for example, to overhaul a meeting room that they were using for high-profile meetings. Uh, trustees walked into the room, thought that the colors reminded them too much of the colors of an enemy's— mm. So they ripped out all the interior, chunked it, and rebuilt it from scratch. Um, on top of that, I think faculty are increasingly nervous because if they are research faculty, uh, research grants are getting scarcer. Uh, if they are tenured track or tenured faculty, uh, the competition for that shrinking space is just heating up, especially as we continue to pump out ever more PhD students. If you're an adjunct, oftentimes you are struggling fiercely just to stay alive or maybe just to have enough money to avoid having the shame of food stamps that a lot of people feel. Uh, I think right now in that comp in that hyper competitive environment i think for a lot of faculty they want to be able to rely on the institution to protect them from that world and to basically produce a kind of buffer within which they can work so i, I think for all of these reasons you have a real difficult time on top of that our national conversation about higher education is just goofy most of the time. Uh, we for example we believe that a few universities equal all of higher education you could read, for example, I can't pronounce his last name. I want to say it's uh, uh, Duresiewicz, the fellow who wrote Excellent Sheep. And every college I go to, people are interested in Excellent Sheep. And I point out, the book was written about Harvard and Yale students. And that's right? it, yeah. That's it. Right. Um, most recently, a Stanford dean of student life published a book where she claimed to talk about undergraduates today. Mm. And I think, okay, the average Stanford student is not the average undergrad. Moreover... The average Stanford student is 18 to 22 if they're an undergrad. Well, the median student in higher education in the U.S. is an adult. So she's really talking about a tiny niche. But that media warpage is uh, is definitely there. In fact, there's been a little exchange uh, over the past day and a half, a piece that showed up in the Washington Post, which uh, offered to explain four hard truths about higher education and in America. And when you read through the piece, you realize that he's talking about Higher education, that is, a few Research One universities, not even the whole sector of Research Ones, but just a handful of them. We're trying to have a national dialogue. You know, if you think about whether whatever whether it's Nakubo or another association or these kinds of reports, we don't think critically enough about breaking it down and, and recognizing that these sectors are almost complete different beasts, yes. right? And 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 who they serve and how they serve yep. uh, a community college versus a research versus a small denominational school versus a mm -hmm. school with a very large football program. They have different drivers and focus. And I think that what we're learning, it seems to me we're up, what we're on the edge of, Brian, is beginning to recognize we have to start to break down those individual uh, types of institutions and begin to understand what are some of their challenges that are consistent across those groups and then what are some of the drivers that will help them. There's this funny, you know, it's funny that you talk about the, a board member saying not collaborate versus we need to crush. But what's so fascinating is that's we don't like talking about that. When we come together, we want to believe mm -hmm. that we we are – 
we are going to help each other, you know, to ride to raise all ships. That's such an interesting thing, Howard, because it's how many episodes do you think we have done that that are in and around the area of collaboration and teams? We talk a lot about collaboration. We talk a lot about shared services uh, between institutions, but it, this gets to this this I- issue that that I'm sort of mulling over hearing you talk, which is, you know, that's that's ma- that's micro level collaboration. Actually, we, you know, when I think back about our conversations about collaboration between institutions. I actually think the a lot of what I observe in the work over the years is about collaboration across within our institutions. Yes, that's and, it. And there is not there is very little collaboration across institutions. I agree. I, I worked for ten years with a nonprofit that worked in the liberal arts sector, and our goal was to, among other things, increase collaboration across these small undergraduate baccalaureate institutions. And it was it was a mighty labor. Um, a lot of and, these schools had a very hard time collaborating with each other. And I don't think, Brian, that they don't. It's not because we are trying to that that we're being so much protectionists. I think it, it it's enough to just collaborate within our own institution mm-hmm. to then say, let me bring in. And this, by the way, if you think about it, a, a, pro, a public institution that has a system, you know, whether it's, you know, I'm just going to pick ones in our area, University of New Hampshire or the, or the mm-hmm. mass, UMass systems, where mm-hmm. they have all these regional campuses, they're under one big ship, right? And there's, there's a system uh, office and, and group that oversees all the region. They have a hard enough time thinking of themselves as one entity, let alone the small independent private institutions that really don't understand how to collaborate. Where the collaboration is showing up, though, interestingly, in this economics issue, is thinking about we we need to continue to find ways to uh, think about our cost structure. And that's driving institutions to say, how do we create these strategic alliances or, or even back office functionality across institutions? And right. it, it's so obvious those are things to do, but it's so hard to put in place. And, and some of it is identity and some of it's ego. Yes, and, and the two overlap a great deal. Um, a wise uh, friend of mine who was a university president for some time told me that uh, she thought uh, – in, academ- in academia, you have some people for whom being part of an institution is essential to your identity. Even if you hate the institution, uh, it, it becomes a key part of who you are. You complain about it a lot because it's that meaningful to you. Uh, and I think that's true for a large number of people. Let me just back up a second, though. I, I think technology really begins to mix this up in a couple of ways. And one of them is what we're doing right now. Through new media, we're able to have conversations and to have these discussions in ways that aren't usually possible or accessible or at least easy to do otherwise. I mean, being able to use the blogosphere in academia, for example, is enormous. And we have blogs for every academic discipline, for all kinds of professions. I mean, it's a major field where tons of discussion are happening. And they're already beginning to have impact. And there's a lot of argument in economics, for example, about the role of the economics blogosphere and to what extent it's beginning to change scholarship and teaching in uh, economics. You see a great deal of this in writing, uh, writing pedagogy. So I, I think that's one area where new media kind of cuts across all these silos pretty easily. The second is there's a kind of headline that you can do in popular journalism of, uh, of fearsome stories about technology. And I once heard this referred to as the technology threat or menace. <laughs> and, and 
a lot of people in academia do feel technology to be a grave threat. I mean, this is partly on the cultural side. Uh, when I work with campuses, often I hear from faculty who are concerned not about the intersection of their institution formally with technology, but about how technology is changing themselves or their students. And often they see it for the worse. You know, they're citing people like uh, Nicholas Carr um, or, uh, unfortunately, Jared Lanier mm -hmm. um, and other critics. But also there's the liberatory possibility. And that's one of the things that I find really fascinating and really optimistic about technology is that it doesn't belong to any one house on campus. It never belonged to computer science, not after 1984 or so. It doesn't really belong to the IT shop because... The IT shop can't doesn't support a lot of technology that people bring to them. You know, it doesn't support Xboxes, right? Uh, the web is this vast, enormous thing, and the IT shop obviously doesn't support every web page on campus, right? Um, plus, they have limits to what they want to support. Um, meanwhile, people show up on campus and they bring their Google Glass or they bring their Apple Watch and then they use multiple websites and they turn this to changing how they research and how they publish. I mean, you think about, say, open access in scholarly publication. That goes way beyond the IT shop, often beyond the CIO realm. It's partly in the intersection between libraries and faculty. And that's a revolution that you know could existentially threaten uh, scholarly publishers right now. If you talk to Wiley or Elsevier, I mean, they're shaking in their boots. They see the end approaching fast, potentially, unless they stave it off. Or you think about teaching with technology. When I go to educational technology conferences, the faculty there are from all over the map. You'll get a biologist sitting down with an English professor. You get librarians talking with IT backend people. Because teaching with technology if, if I can be literally critical for a minute, I, I think of it as defamiliarizing what we know. The technology, in some ways, makes us rethink what we already knew. I mean, go back to the 90s. Remember when search engines started taking off? You know, Alta Vista and Ask Jeeves, Dogpile, Yahoo. That wasn't a completely new thing. The reference desk of the library did that. You know, you walk up to the reference desk, I want to learn something about Albuquerque, and they would, you know, point you to the resources. That was the goal of something like Yahoo. But instead, they shook up that and reinforced some new ideas and gave us some new concepts for thinking about what does search mean? What does gatekeeping mean? You know, which is why we had all these frantic public policy debates about should we control the internet or not, and some strong attempts to do that. Uh, I, when it comes to academia, you can think about other ways, too. What does privacy mean in the classroom? And we used to have this idea, Howard's going to teach a class on organizational change. He goes to the front of the class, the door closes. It's his realm for the next hour, hour and a half. No one can enter that class without certain procedures going through. Well, that's how we built copyright law for education. In fact, the TEACH Act from the year 2000 is based on the idea that uh, trying, to trying to replicate that classroom. But nowadays, any student with a bad phone can video Howard talking to a student. Uh, Howard can video a student, put this up on the web. The, the closed door of the classroom is blown wide open. I mean, what we think about the classroom privacy is now something we have to rethink. I think technology's ability to defamiliarize gives us better conversations. I, I think that's really true. So much of that, though, then comes back to how well institutions are able to see these, all of these transformative effects as leading indicators uh, to to changing the way they work as institutions, right? I mean, Howard, you know, yeah. when you talk about these systems, do you do you see this, the you know, the administrators that you're working with actually taking time to see the things Brian's talking about and and push them forward as change uh, uh, 
milestones? I'm always listening for the kind of conversation that we're in. So if I'm working with a group, uh, it people are so quick to want to get to solving a problem that they don't initially understand, but they think they do. So they so you got to help them step back to say, all right, what does it mean? What does it mean for us to first consider? Are we asking the right questions? And that in itself uh, is hard for people to do because it demands them uh, accepting that maybe they don't understand the problem that they're solving, right? So when I'm working with whether it's a cabinet or a president's council or a board or a dean and their chairs, one of the biggest challenges I find, Brian, is taking this see this wave of ideas coming at us and saying, how do we step back from the the amount of change coming our way and and make sure that we are looking far enough out to say, where do we want to be X period of time and therefore match that against where we are? And, and I'll tell you, the, the dilemma I find is people's bandwidth drives them back to looking at the budget cycle or the academic year right. and you have to you have to work so hard to get people to think beyond that it wasn't that long ago having a plan that looked out 10 years seemed reasonable because it didn't you didn't have a sense that 10 years from now the fundamental structures would change what i'm struck by is we have to rethink even what does it mean to have a strategy today that that allows us to be flexible. I mean, this is the big change that I'm I'm hoping seeing more institutions take on is recognize this is not about a plan that you write and then you put on the shelf. In part, not to be self-congratulatory, but that's one of the roles of outside outside agencies and outside actors, you know, like say the New Media Consortium or like yourself in your enterprise, Howard, is to be people who have the time and the resources, the other resources, to be able to analyze these issues and then repackage them, make them into actionable intelligence uh, for administrators who are, as you say, overwhelmed. There's a wonderful book by Ann Blair. It's it's wonderful in the sense that it's horrifying and depressing and funny. Um, she looks at uh, people. You're not selling who, it that well. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I, I think it works. I think it works. Okay. It's 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 looking at people from 1400 to 1700, um, the early modern era, people who thought they had too much to read. And um, what's funny, of course, is, you know, these people say, oh, I have 20 books. How will I read them? And you think, you have no idea what information overload really means. Um, <laughs> but but what's, what's nice about it is that in those three centuries, people invented new means for handling information overload. They camped with things like they picked up old marginal notations and ran with them to make it easier to read. They pushed for translation in a big way. They invented the cyclopedia, then the encyclopedia. You know, there are all these strategies. The index really took off, you know, a, a, a better tables of contents. And so we're doing this right now, you know, trying to cope with it. But, but I think, you know, to come back to your point, I think we have to really present this stuff in ways that is comprehensible. Uh, digestible and again actionable. Well, know, so let me let me ask you a question sure. that I think about every day, uh, which is what kind of impact am I trying to have? You know, as I look into preparing for 2016, I'm gonna we're gonna be looking at all right, what kind of impact do I wanna be part of? In you know, when I look back at as we end 2016, what what kind of impact are you hoping? 
to achieve in your work uh, as you look forward? I mean, I'd love to hear your view on this, and then I'll share some of my thoughts about that. Well, very quickly, I want to get people thinking better about the future of education, especially as it's transforming technology. That's the simple, simple statement. That's the mission statement. And because it's so challenging, it covers a multitude of sins and a lot of work. Um, but I think that's, I think that's, that's really the challenge. I, I have one personal advantage, which is that I grew up as a kid reading science fiction. And I think unless you're reading science fiction in 2015, you're not prepared for the 21st century. Um, so that made me think about the future from er, from an early age, you know, just thinking about the possibilities of that. So that's that's the contribution I want to have. Mm, How about I love you? it. The very specific area I'm looking to have more impact around is helping people who do not work in the same areas. And I loosely call this, you know, across the aisles, academics, administration, trustees, students, those four major bodies, and then there's the community, but I'll exclude the community, but the four major bodies that make up our institutions, what I'd like to see more of is practical ways that these bodies are coming together to solve problems that they all care about. There's still a, there's still a mindset about protecting who owns the mission and, 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 and who's responsible for the mission, as opposed to recognizing if we're going to get through this, there's, you cannot, as administration, put in academic reform without involving academics. And now they know that, but finding a way to have those conversations where we see that we're not only we in this together, but we share the same concerns. We have a different way of talking about it. Yes. You know, the, the, the barrier between the academy and administration working more effectively together in every institution has to do with how we approach a problem, what we think the problem is, and willingness to learn where the other side's coming from and recognize they have a contribution to what we're doing and vice versa. And that's what I'm passionate about. It's like breaking down those silos mm. so that we're having this idea of one big brain working through a problem as opposed to these individual lines thinking that by solving it in your area, you're somehow magically going to come together. And, and I think this is why we have such trouble uh, making decisions is because we don't work together in the problem solving. We, you know, we, we work individually in problem solving, and then we try to convince others why our, our ideas are correct as opposed to saying, let's problem solve or problem find together, and then let's figure out where do we want to take this it takes a willingness to step back and say we're going to make a t we're going to make time for non keeping the trains running conversations we are adapting to change as a result of the influence of technology every day know it or like it or not right it's it's happening to us right. uh, we're adapting the call for these business officers and for leaders i think if i'm reflecting what i'm hearing you both say is to think about whether or not they are actively open to the signals of change around them, if they can envision their institution in 5, 10, 20 years, and to seriously and soberly ask themselves if they want to be a part of that institution. Nice. I like your that, final hook there, if they want to be part of the institution, because I think some of them will not. 
And that's okay. True, true. I mean, but that, sh- that needs to be okay, that some need the freedom and being reminded it's okay to opt out. The, the key about giving someone actively informed intelligence is that they get to make an informed decision. So they can knowledgeably decline. I think if you're listening to this and you are not actively open to the change signals around you, this can feel like a a particularly dour uh, conversation. And and I would very much like to end on a note of optimism. Can you each take a turn and tell me one big thing that we have to be optimistic and hopeful about uh, in your observation of change going on at institutions? Brian, would you start? I look at 18 to 22-year-olds. And um, I, I worry about them. I think that uh, some of them finished high school or went into their undergraduate education uh, 2008, 2012, in the worst economy we've seen in decades. Um, the economy doesn't look good for them as a whole. Uh, they're already behind. We know um, with college debt, we know they're marrying later. We know they make less money. Uh, some of them are underemployed. We know that we're giving them a world that is heating up rapidly. And we are clearly doing next to nothing about it. And these 18 to 22-year-olds also know that we can't stand them, that we mock them for being entitled, for being coddled and all of that. And after all of that, they just get to work. They make stuff. They go to school. They haven't revolted. They haven't unplugged from society. After all that, they get there and they make stuff. They get creative. They're already making their stories or making meaning. That generation just that gives me heart. I was worried where you were going to go with that. It was a pretty dark setup for a pretty nice ending. Brian. Yeah, well, that was well that, played. I, I, I came I think, out of the valley of despair and came right back up. That was fast. <laughs> I think we lucked out. I'm not sure we deserve them. In fact, that may be the great truth of this episode. Because uh, of the decrease in the K-12 population in the U.S., higher education is importing more and more students from abroad, and I think that has really salutary effects on higher education. It's forcing us to rethink uh, pedagogy, student support, and it's making campuses much more interesting, uh, much richer places to be. I love the way that we can use this technology to have the conversations we normally couldn't have so easily. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we can quickly have these conversations and then share them so that everyone can participate. I'm fundamentally optimistic about the fact that more and more institutions are are taking the time to step back and recognize that business as usual is not sufficient and that we don't have to go by the old ways about doing strategic planning. It's really about being connected to change is the norm. And if that's the case, we can all sort of surrender into that we're going to be leaving more and more with ambiguity and let's figure it out as we go. And for those institutions that take that mindset, the leaders that are part of it, they are making great progress through this change because they're not feeling – they're not treating it as a threat. And, and that to me is where that's, – that's where the power lives. Uh, and, and for those listening, for those navigating this of all the you know, the four to 5,000 institutions out there of all the different sectors uh, – there's a perception of winners and losers, There's a, but, but ultimately I think it comes down to your willingness to take risks internally. As you said, Brian, have get the data you need so that you can have intelligent conversations and then make choices together across the different divisions of your institution. These are, are This has been a fantastic conversation, gents. Thank you so much for your time and attention. Brian, where would you uh, like to send people who want to learn more about your, uh, your good work and your writing? 
Uh, BrianAlexander.org is probably the best place. And you can also find me on Twitter. I'm Brian Alexander. That's Brian with a Y. Fantastic. Brian Alexander, thank you so much for joining us today and, uh, and sharing your insights. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Pete. And thank you, Howard. This is a lot of fun. The hour flew by for me. Yeah, this, is, this has got to be the first of a number of these we do, Brian. I really hope so. I look forward to it. On behalf of Brian Alexander and Howard Teibel, I'm Pete Wright, and we'll catch you next week on Navigating Change, the podcast from Teibel, Inc. Mm-hmm.